So most of you don't know this about me. I'm not even sure if Wendy knows much about this about me, but when I was a very, very, very much younger man, um, I wanted to be a lawyer. It was, it was just a fascinating thing to me. I, I, did, I ever, did I ever tell you about that? No? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, she doesn't remember. Uh, um, mostly I wanted to be a, a lawyer because I like to argue. Um, but uh, I was also just fascinated with the whole system of, of law. Um, and of course, most of us get our, our ideas of what the uh, legal system is through like law and order. Uh, anybody watch Law and Order? where they can solve crimes and, and adjudicate them in like 60 minutes. It's, it's amazing. Um, but uh, real life courtrooms uh, don't look a lot like that. And uh, one of the things that I get to do as a, uh, as a business teacher, I teach a business law class, and uh, every fall I take uh, my class to the Dauphin County Courthouse and we're able to sit in on a day uh, during a trial, uh, which might sound boring to some people, but uh, I got to tell you, I took uh, about 25 students with me this uh, past December, and none of them wanted to be there, but they were all happy to be out of school. So they, they, I told them they needed to, to, to dress nicely, they needed to get all of these things just so they could be out of school. But as the trial started, it was the first day of this trial, you could see their, their posture change, right? They went to, from just being like kind of sitting around and, and leaning over and talking to each other and giggling and all this stuff. And, and all of a sudden, like things started happening. And it was just like, oh, this might be interesting. And there were some witnesses that made it really, really interesting. It was, it was actually hard for some of them, uh, for one of the witnesses, to, to not laugh during their testimony. But it got so interesting, and they started asking questions, and the, the, the judge would come down during the breaks, and he would answer questions for them, and it was just a fascinating thing. And I've, I've always loved that, just about the law and about uh, the, the whole legal system. But even though the, the, the courtroom doesn't look like TV, a lot of us have some idea of, of, of what it is and, and the things that happen there. And the, I'm talking about this, and I know you're why is he sharing this? I'm talking about this because I learned recently of a film that was released in 2008, and probably most of you have never heard of this film. It was a film called God on Trial. Um, it was based on a play called The Trial of God by Eli Weissel. And the film is set in Auschwitz, which probably the worst concentration camp run by the Nazis during World War II. Over 1.3 million people were sent to this camp, and over 1.1 million died. And almost a million of those were Jews. And in the film, these Jewish prisoners, the, the, these new prisoners have been kind of herded into this room that had the bunk beds and just all really kind of tight and everything. And the prisoners start to question God. They start to question why God has allowed the extermination of his chosen people. And they decide to put God on trial. Now, of course, God 
didn't come down and sit in trial. So he was in, on trial in absentia. But they wanted to decide whether or not, and this was the charge, whether or not God had broken his covenant with the people of Israel. And they questioned things like why God allows evil to happen. And they discussed things like free will. And they discussed the idea that, hey, Israel broke the covenant first and broke it often. But they came to the understanding, or at least they thought, that God was now no longer with the Jewish people, but God was with the German people. And God was destroying the Jewish nation. And as I watched the film, it occurred to me that this was... This is something that many of us have done. Whether we realize it or not, whether we call it a trial or not, a lot of us have a lot of questions about God. Christians have questions about God, and of course, non-Christians have lots and lots of questions about God. And I encourage you, if you ever get the chance, watch the film. It's out there for free. You can Google it, God on Trial. It's a really compelling kind of uh, fictional trial where people are asking these hard questions about God. And I grew up in a church where you didn't ask questions about God. You didn't ask questions about some of the things that we read in the Bible that we might find um, unpalatable. We don't question whether or not God is real. We don't question whether or not God created the, the universe. We don't question whether he created it in six days. We don't question. We don't question. We just accept whatever the pastor is saying. And that's how I grew up in the church that I grew up in. God forbid that you actually asked any questions. It would be not very good for you. But I think that it's appropriate that we explore these questions that people are asking because they're asking them of us. They're asking them of the church. They're asking them of Christians. And I think that it's important that we look at those questions, that we explore them, that we study them. And that, if possible, we come up with some answers. Or at least some plausible information that might help them further understand where we're coming from and possibly further uh, their walk with God if they, are, if they are truly seeking that kind of walk. So this spring, up until Easter, we're going to be walking through a sermon series called God on Trial. And no, we're not going to put God on trial so to speak, but we are going to ask a lot of questions. We're going to explore the ways that God has been indicted. Another big fancy term. God has been indicted throughout Scripture, and God has been indicted in the modern day. Accusations against God that are prevalent in Western society. And there are a ton of accusations, of questions, of all kinds of things that are going on. And we'll also look, as we get closer to uh, Easter, we will look at the indictments against Jesus that led to his own trial, and we'll look at the indictments against Jesus that people have today. 
So let's start with a definition. An indictment is simply an accusation of wrongdoing. That's all it is. Now, in the legal system, it's a little more complicated. It has to be in writing, and there's a grand jury, and there are all these things. We're just going to say that it's an accusation of wrongdoing against someone. And in this case, we're going to be looking at accusations against God and accusations against a couple of his people in the Bible. So we see the very first indictment of God in Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to read from verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Doesn't this sound like a court case? Doesn't this sound like Eve is kind of a, a, a witness giving testimony? What did God actually say to you is what Satan is asking. And in this passage, the serpent, who is Satan, is putting God on trial. And some of you may not know this, but the word Satan in Hebrew means accuser. So it's, it's appropriate, his name, Satan. He is accusing God of something here. And he's issuing this indictment. Satan calls God a liar and implies that God does not care about our goodwill. He does not care about us as human beings. And the first thing that the serpent says is, did God really say you can't eat? I mean, that's basically what he's asking. He asks, did God say you should not eat of any tree of the garden? Well, that was all the food there was. So really, he was asking, did God say you should starve yourself to death? It was such a ridiculous question. And this is what happens when people start getting us into conversations about God. They will ask a ridiculous question, something that's so far out, so outlandish, that we can't help but to respond. And we respond very innocently, sometimes very naively, just like Eve did. And Eve says, no, of course not. Yes, we can eat. There's just one tree, just one out of all of these trees that we can't eat. That's it. You see, Satan is setting Eve up here. He's trying to be charming. He's trying to be deceiving. He's trying to be a little bit smarmy, like we see our lawyers sometimes, right? Sorry, lawyers. I know there are a couple of you here. But this was the setup. And Eve says, of course not. He just said that if we eat this one fruit on this one tree on that day, we will surely die. God said you would surely die if you ate that fruit? Yes, that's what God said. Eve, God was lying to you. You will not surely die if you eat that fruit. Well, what do you mean? That fruit will not kill you. In fact, not only will it not kill you, not only is God lying to you, he's withholding from you. 
God knows that if you eat that fruit, you'll become like him. You'll be able to know what's good. But we already know what's good. God is good. Yes, but you'll also be able to know what's evil. And by knowing both of those things, you will be like God. I'm afraid he's holding back from you. I'm afraid he's lied to you. And we know the rest of the story. Eve is convinced that God is lying to her. And she takes the fruit and she looks at it and she sees that it is pleasing and she eats it. And then she takes it and gives it to her husband, Adam, and he eats it. And then they know good and evil. This is what happens to them. Did they die? We believe, yes, they did. They may not have physically fallen down and expired that day, but death entered into humanity on that day. Physical death and spiritual death. We all die. And we are all dead without Jesus Christ. Their relationship with God was destroyed because of this act of not believing that God had their best interests at heart, not believing that God was telling the truth. There was another time when Satan tried to indict God, and this time his accusation was that people really only love him when everything is going well. How many of you have ever heard people kind of say about Christians, well, when things are going well, you're all good, and you go to church, and you do all of this stuff, but when things aren't going well, you're just like everybody else. And unfortunately, we are. But Satan made this accusation that we only really love God when everything is going well or when God is protecting us or when God is taking care of us. But when he's not, then we're going to complain. We're going to just turn our backs on God. We see this indictment in Job chapters 1 and 2. And there's a fair, this is, this is another book that's just fascinating to me because really it is kind of a trial. Um, Job, something happens to Job, his three friends come and they have this just intense and lengthy conversation where they are accusing him of sin and Job is saying, no, I didn't sin. And they're accusing him of not loving God and they're, no, I love God. And it just kind of this back and forth until God shows up to defend himself. But this whole, if you've never read the book of Job, please, I invite you to read it. It gets a little uh, bogged down in parts, but it really is a fascinating look at how we as humans put God on trial. But we mentioned Job uh, briefly last week, but let's take a little deeper look starting in Job chapter 1, verse 1. There's a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This is the introduction. And there's a lot going on in this verse. And if we pay close attention, we can see how this event is really a lot bigger than one person. So we, first we take a look. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. 
doesn't seem very significant until we realize that Uz is not in the land where Israel was. Job is not a Hebrew. Job, by all accounts, shouldn't know who God is. The Hebrews knew who God was. But Job is outside that group. He has learned about God from other people. There are some priests that we read about, like uh, in uh, Genesis. We talk about some priests that knew God, and Job probably learned about God through them. But he is not a Jew. He is not a Hebrew. It's likely that he lived before the nation of Israel was born, before Jacob. And because of this, he had to learn about God through other people. He had to learn through, about God through his own experiences. There was no law. There was no word of God. There were no tabernacle priests. There were no churches. But we do know from the Old Testament that there were people that feared God, even though they weren't of the people of Israel. And this verse also says that Job was blameless. And I want to point out something to you. Blameless does not mean sinless. Blameless means that you have integrity. See, we know that Job was not sinless because Job said that he's not sinless. In a couple of places in the book of Job, he says, he talks about the iniquities of my youth. Iniquity is another word for sin. And he also talks about my sin. So we know that blameless can't mean sinless. But what it means is, and the way the rabbis often put it these days, is his within was like his without. His within was like his without. It means that he had genuineness and authenticity. Another way of saying this, he wasn't a hypocrite. What Job had on the inside, he showed on the outside. That's what being blameless means. And we also read that he was upright. So not only did he have integrity within himself, he did not hide who he was. He did, certainly did not hide his relationship with God. But he also was upright, which meant that he dealt fairly and kindly and graciously with other people. So in his business dealings, he was fair. In his family, he took care of them. Bible even says that when his kids went off and had little parties, little dinner parties together, Job the next morning would get up and make sacrifices to God just in case his children might have sinned while they were having dinner together. Job loved and cared for his family. He loved and cared for his servants. And yes, they had servants back in that time. It was a thing that happened. And he loved them and he took care of them. Job did the word of God even before the word of God was written. And we talked for a couple of months back in the fall about doing the word of God. And Job is a perfect example. 
of what James wrote about doing the word of God. And finally, we read that Job feared God and turned away from evil. Now, how many of you are familiar with the fear of God? You've, you've heard that term before. You've been in church for a while. You've heard the fear of God. How many of you feel that it's like a Scooby-Doo kind of fear where you, your knees are knocking and you're, you're averting your face and all of those? How many of you feel like that's the, the fear of God? That's what I was taught was the fear of God when I was growing up. You've got to be afraid of God. And I'm like, why do I need to be afraid of God? He loves me. He's not going to do anything. Well, if you don't love him, he's going to smite you. These are the things that I learned growing up in the church that I grew up in. But the fear of God is not fear. It's not being afraid of God. The word for that in the Hebrew means most often to stand in awe before. Now, most of you know my aversion to the word awesome. If you've been here for a while, you know that I've talked about, I hate the word awesome, because pizza is not awesome, right? I am not in awe of pizza. Well, bacon maybe, but I am not in awe of pizza. I am in awe of God. I am in awe of the things that he does, and I am in awe of some of the things that he does through his people. But this is what the fear of God is. It is standing in awe in reverence, honoring God. That's what Job did. Proverbs 9, 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And when we stand in reverent awe before God and we honor him with our prayer and with our worship and with our lives, we are fearing the Lord. And when we fear God, it is natural that we will turn away from evil. If we have reverence for God, we're not going to do those things that God doesn't want us to do. So this is the whole setup of Job. And in verses 2 through 5, and we don't have a lot of time this morning, verses 2 through 5 tell us some examples of what Job was like. And he was well-liked, and his children loved him, and they didn't have a care in the world, and all of these things that you can read uh, as you read through Job. But it shows his human success, it shows his parental success, and it shows his reverent awe of God. And at the end of verse 5, it says, thus Job did continually. That means he lived the way that he knew God wanted him to live. He did this continually. And we're about to see that God was very pleased with Job. Job 1, 6 to 8 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered... My servant Job, that there is none other like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears evil and turns away from evil, or who fears God and turns away from evil. That's God talking about Job. Job's doing something right. This is the praise that God is giving to Job. And we don't have time this morning to dive into this whole exchange between God and Satan. I wish we did. We'll do that some other time. 
Uh, I know there are people have a lot of questions. You know, well, what was Satan doing with God? Why was he there? Was he do this and that? We'll talk about that some other time. But what I want to talk about is Satan's indictment, not only of Job, but of God. Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. This is Satan's accusation. You're buying Job's love. You're taking care of him. Of course he's going to love you. Of course he's going to worship you. He's going to honor you. He's going to fear you. Take all of that away and see what happens. So God allows Satan to destroy Job's life. And we read further in Job chapter 1. Destroys his business, destroys his possessions, destroys his servants, destroys his children. All ten of them are killed at one time. Everything that Job had was gone, except for his wife, and we'll get to her in a minute. Everything was destroyed. And what's Job's response? When he learns of the utter destruction of all that he had, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now we've all heard that phrase, right? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. For Job, it meant everything. And still, he remained a person of integrity. His within was like his without. He worshipped God. Not because God gave him anything, but because God deserved worship. And Satan returns to God. There's another day where Satan goes back to God. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Let me tell you about Job. Job still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him with no reason. I don't want to say God's boasting here. Because I'm not sure that God's a boastful God. But he is pleased with Job and his response to losing everything. But Satan's not finished with God yet. Satan goes on, he says, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. 
I love that he uses the same words there. He will curse you to your face, God, this time. He didn't do it last time. I was wrong. But this time, he's going to do it. And once again, God allows Satan to strike Job in his body. We learn that Job is struck with these horrible, painful sores from head to toe. The Bible says the only relief that he can get is to take broken pieces of pottery and scrape his skin. To scrape means to scratch. He's just constantly running this pottery over his skin to try to get some measure of relief against this painful, horrible sores. And at one point, his wife looks at him, all sored and, and, and scratching with the pottery, and she says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. What is wrong with you? And how many of us, when we have experienced tremendous hardship, when we have experienced serious disease, when we have experienced the death of a loved one, when we have experienced these horrible things, how often does the world look at us and say, why are you still trusting God? God's not doing anything for you. That's what Job's wife is saying. God's not doing anything for you anymore. Just curse him and die already. And again, Job responds. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Satan is the accuser. Satan is the prosecuting attorney. I'm going to put this in, in, in law and order terms for you guys now. He's the guy on this side of the table, and he's making the accusations. He's bringing the charges. And he's bringing the charges against God, and he's bringing charges against us too. People who call themselves believers in Jesus Christ. For humans, he wants to show us, he wants to accuse us of not being able to live up to God's expectations. How many of you have ever fallen into a sin and the very first thing you think is, God will not forgive me for this? Maybe it's something you've done more than once. Maybe it's something you've done a hundred times. God has forgiven me 99 times, but this 100th time, no way, that's it. That's, that's the limit. God will not forgive me anymore. I may as well just give it up. I'm going to throw my Bible away. I'm going to stop going to church, and I'm just going to live my life. And there are people, sadly, who will do just that. And when you hear or when you think God will not forgive me for this, that is not anybody but the accuser. That is not anybody but someone who wants to bring charges against you to get you to turn your back on God, even though God has not turned his back on you. Just like in the Garden of Eden, he wants you to believe the lie. This is what's happening for us. And he's putting God on trial, obviously. He is God's opponent. We read that often in Scripture. 
And he accuses God sometimes through the minds of people that God is not living up to his side of the bargain. Or God is not living up to his nature as we read about it in Scripture. Well, God sets conditions on his love. He'll only love you if you do X, Y, and Z. Or God buys your love with his blessings. He's going to let things go well for you so you'll worship him. And we see all of these things handed down to us, these indictments. Sometimes the accusation is just that God simply doesn't exist. There's no God. Sometimes it's against God's character or God's nature. Would a loving God... Dot, dot, dot. Would an all-powerful God, dot, dot, dot. And these indictments come to us because we're the ones that are witnesses for Jesus Christ. So most often we're hearing these things from other people and Christianity itself gets put on trial. Over the next several weeks, we're going to address some of these indictments. We're going to address the questions of, does God exist? We're going to address the question of, if, if, if God is a loving God, why would this happen? If God is an all-powerful God, why would this happen? We're going to take a look at these questions because they are questions that are being asked. And they are being asked on January 21st, 2024. I looked it up. I looked out at the message boards. People are still asking, how can you prove that God exists? We're going to take a look, and we're going to see if we can answer some of those questions. Now, they may not be the answers that people want to hear. They may not be answers that people will believe, but they are the answers. According to Scripture, according to the nature of God, according to who Jesus Christ is, they are the answers, whether they want to accept them or not. Peter instructs us in 1 Peter 3.15 that one of our jobs as Christians, when we are sharing our faith with one another, he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do you have hope within you this morning? Do you have the hope of Jesus Christ living inside of you? Do you have the hope of the Holy Spirit walking with you, living with you, convicting you when you sin, lifting you up when you are down? Do you have hope? Because if you don't have hope, it won't matter what question you answer. And it won't matter how good the answer is because if you don't have hope, you don't believe it yourself. <clears throat> we walk into this world every single morning. I walk into a high school where people are belittled for their beliefs every single day. You walk into places of work where they tell you, if you talk about God, 
or if you hang a Bible verse up on your cubicle wall, or if you have a Bible in your desk drawer, you're going to go to HR. We don't want that kind of thing around here. This is the world that we live in. In the fall, we learned what it was to be, or what it is to be, true followers of Jesus Christ, doing His Word. And in this spring, we're going to learn how to address some of these things that are happening in our world. Some of these questions that are happening. And I'm going to tell you right now, there are some people that are asking these questions and all they want to do is start a fight. They just want to argue with you. You're not going to say anything to convince them. They're already convinced. But there are some people who are asking these questions who are truly seeking answers. And we're going to learn, number one, we don't have to have all of the answers. Do you know why? The Holy Spirit has all of the answers. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of sin, to bring people to Jesus Christ. That's not our job. <sighs> what a relief that is. But it is our job to be prepared, prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks whether they want to hear it or not about the hope that is within us through Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to explore over the next several weeks. But there's one more thing, and then I'm going to let you go. We can't just be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is within us. We also have to do it with gentleness and respect. And that's where a lot of Christians have a hard time. We are supposed to do these things with gentleness and respect the way that Jesus did when he was here. He set the example for us. And we're going to look at that example so that we can be able to share him with other people. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your creation. We thank you that you are. Father, if there was nothing else but that you are, that would be enough. But God, you created us. And you didn't create us to be robots. You didn't create us to just do whatever you say. You created us to be in relationship. And we thank you that we can know what is the best thing for us by reading your scripture? But Father, you also gave us free will. You gave us the ability to act against you. And Father, this world today, at least in the United States, is, is acting against you in many, many ways. Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Strengthen us. Teach us and give us wisdom so that we can be prepared to make a defense 
for anyone who asks for the hope that is within us. And Father, give us the meekness and humility of Jesus Christ that will help us do that with gentleness and respect. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity to share the gospel with anyone who you would put into our lives. We thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice on the cross, and we thank you that he lives again so that we might know eternal life. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. One of the greatest things that we can do in preparing ourselves to make a defense for the hope that is within us is to know what that hope is. And that starts with reading our Bibles and knowing what it says. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you are not in the habit of reading your Bible every single day, of spending time with the Holy Spirit and asking Him to show you and tell you what God is trying to say to you, I encourage you, start today. Five minutes a day, ten minutes a day. You will be fascinated by the nature of God in your study. God bless you this week.